Father, we wait for your wisdom. We wish to bask in your knowledge. And you have provided us everything we need for life and godliness. You have provided for us encouragement, even though the days we live in are dark. And we understand there is a glory that awaits us, specifically your glory. And where you are, you desire to have us with you. And we wait for that rapture. But Lord, until then, we would ask you would fill us full of knowledge and wisdom, how we might minister to those who are downtrodden or persecuted, and bring an encouragement in such a way that they have their face brightened, that they realize there is a hope that lies ahead. We thank you for those who have gone before us for thousands of years who have maintained the faith and how we have this, Lord, in our hands and in our minds. We ask that you would expand it and use it for the glory of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. <coughs> it says, Now those who had been scattered by persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. Now, it is because of persecution that God was able to move people around. And this has happened throughout history, whether God is judging the Jews, the nation of Israel, or he is persecuting Christians. And I don't mean that in a direct sense. God allows it to come. And Scripture does say that we have been given that privilege to suffer for God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And this has happened forever. Ever since there have been people, there have been persecution, persecutions, there have been crimes, there have been murders, there's selfishness, there's rage and anger and hatred and discord and jealousy. All of those things have existed since the fall, since Cain and Abel, since Cain killed Abel, and even up to our century, our current day and age. Some of these persecutions that have taken place, we understand that the Jews, they were judged by God and they were taken away first by the Assyrians. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken away by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judea, they were taken away by the Babylonians. God judged them, but he brought them back into the land. And they were established in the land at that time. And there have been battles and wars and the Muslims came uh, up in the 7th and 8th century there and they were persecuted there and many lost their lives and then there were the crusades and Christians persecuted the Jews and killed them if they did not recant their Jewishness they were thrown over the walls in Jerusalem or they were pierced through or had their heads cut off those types of things were going on and back in um, November 9th 1938 the Jews if you remember the phrase Kristallnacht Kristallnacht took place in Germany, and what happened was there was an assassination, assassination of Ernst von Rath. He had been killed by Herschel Greenspan, a 17-year-old Polish Jew who is distraught over the deportation of his family from Germany, and so he killed Mr. Rath. Because of that, Germany just went ballistic on the Jews. And what happened was 7,500 Jewish-owned businesses, homes, and schools were plundered. 91 Jews were murdered. 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and sent to concentration camps. 
And they imposed a fine on the Jewish community of $400 million. That would be in today's uh, money. And of course, they could never pay that. And so the persecution has always been existing for not only Christians, but for God's people. And sometimes it's a result of judgment. How much has it been coming to us? Well, I, I think we see it more and more. It has always been the case in the Middle East in the 1040 window that Christians are being killed by the thousands. They're being imprisoned. There are countries like North Korea, Somalia, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Sudan, and Iran. All of those places are actively killing Christians even today. Today there's going to be some Christians that go to glory because they're being killed for their faith. Or if a Muslim converts to Christianity, that's a capital offense. You can be killed because of that. If you're sharing your faith, you can be imprisoned in one of those countries. Well, what about here closer to home? Is there persecution that takes place? Our persecution here, I believe, right now is light. It's not heavy, but it is still there. If you remember Jack Phillips, he was a baker who had been harassed for over a decade and was made uh, given several requests as a baker to bake profane cakes. And he decided he wasn't going to do that. And he eventually went to court and he won his case. But there is this move to get people to conform to the way society is going. Uh, I don't know if you know the difference between communism and socialism. I read this the other day and I thought it was good. Communism, they make you comply by force. Socialism, they make you comply by vote. And that's where we are right now. But socialism always degrades to communism. And so a group of people, a minority, will come in and they end up forcing their will on the majority. Christians are not looked at as something that is uh, to be desired or to have fellowship with or to have communication with. They are to be silenced. They are to be put down. And that's the mode in which we are residing right now in this country. There was also uh, Baronel uh, Stutzman. She was a florist that was eventually forced into retirement for not participating in gay weddings to provide flowers for the gay weddings. And it took her eight years for a case to be adjudicated, and she lost. And, and she had to pay a $1,000 fine, and, of course, she lost her business. Then there was Coach Joe Kennedy. He was fired because in 2015 he would get on a football field and he would invite any of the young players to come out and pray with him, kneel and pray on the 50-yard line. Because of that, he was fired, and it took eight years for his case to be adjudicated as well, and he won. And you don't know if you're going to win or if you're going to lose. And as I previously stated, Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. There's this guy I'm going to talk about in a moment, but he had a complaint when he visited some Western churches. The Western churches, he, he criticized them and he said, they are all about themselves and comfort. That's what they're about. And he came from India and he saw that and he was really just taken aback by how the Christian church has molded itself into having comfort and having wealth and having possessions and 
claiming that as God's blessing and, and having status as a result of that. Now going on in verse 20, it talks about these places that men had been scattered to and those who went to minister to them. It says, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. This would probably have been thousands of people got saved. Then verse 22 says, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So what ended up happening is they deliberately went to the Gentiles. And remember, I was talking about that last week. How did the gospel get to us beginning with the Jews? And I gave you kind of the route in which even Calvary Chapel here came into existence. And this is the idea that they carried was salvation is not just for the Jew, although it is for the Jew first, but also for the Gentiles. And they were encouraged. And so the leaders at that time, they had to deliver a lot of encouragement because times were tough. There was persecution. They had to move out of Israel, out of Jerusalem to keep it from even being imprisoned or killed. And that's what the leader should do is encourage because steadfastness and endurance is required because it can be so difficult. Now, who is this Barnabas? Well, he was a gracious man. Do you know his other name? He was known by another name. It was Joseph and he was a Levite. It says this in Acts chapter four. We had already covered it. Verse 36. It reads, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So he was a guy in the body of Christ, and everybody has a particular gift. Guess what his gift was? Encouragement. He would walk around, he'd grab somebody by the shoulders and say, how you doing, brother? It's good to see you. And give him a big slap and a hug on the back. And you just keep up with the faith. You keep on serving Jesus Christ. And he would come in and that's who he was. He was always a man that would deliver encouragement. Remember between him and Paul, they decided not to take John Mark with them. And a great rift happened between the two. There was a fight. It was not a small matter. And I could see Barnabas saying... I know that he left us, Paul, but look, he's a great kid now. We need to take him with us. And so he is trying to encourage Paul. And Paul's saying, I'm not having anything to do with that little punk. He's not going. That's Bill's version. Um, He's not going with us anywhere at any time. And so they split. Remember, Paul went with Silas. And then Barnabas, he went off and he took John Mark. And of course, the Lord multiplied the efforts by doing that. So encouragement is help or reassurance or inspiration or backing or support. And that's what he did. He sold a field, as we just read in Acts chapter 4, to provide money and support for others. If you're ever feeling down, find out who has the gift of encouragement and Put yourself around them. Say, I need a little encouragement. They will gush all over you. They will help you. They will bring you to a place where things seem a little bit brighter. And so this idea of encouraging one another, several places in Scripture tell us we're supposed to do this. 
First Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. When we get together as a body of believers, we're not to cut each other down. Now, if there is a rebuke or an admonishment that is necessary that's supposed to be done by the leadership in the church, or, or even a word of encouragement can be brought by them, but encouragement, I think, is universal for everybody. And brother can talk to brother and sister to sister, you know, if there's something that needs to be changed. But for the most part, we're to build each other up, not tear each other down. Now, how do we accomplish this when we see that the churches are now taking this drift towards the world? Do we criticize them? Do we call them out and say, you ought not to be going in that direction? I think we should, but lovingly not in a condemning fashion. I think that there is a lot of error out there that we're going to have to guard against. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message. This is talking about leadership. As it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So we're supposed to encourage each other, bring help, bring this inspiration, bring backing, bring support through the teaching of doctrine. That we we explain to people what scripture says. To give an example of this, there's a whole section of the Christian church. Most of the Christian church does not believe in the rapture. They believe that it is either allegorical, usually it's allegorical. It just refers to something else, you know, we're going to be with Christ. But it's not really a physical taking up from this earth and going to heaven. John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3 where we're going to be with him. And so the... What hope is there? The blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus chapter 2. We're supposed to look for his coming, the blessed hope. You know, we're to look to the heavens for our redemption draws near. God tells us to watch and be ready in Luke chapter 21. We're always looking, the imminent return of Jesus Christ to come back. But there are those, I I think I explained to you, the NAR, the uh, New Apostolic Reformation, they're saying, no, there is none of that. The world's going to get better and better and better, and Jesus Christ is going to come back and sit on his throne, and we're all going to be happy. It's not getting better. Have you guys seen anywhere where it's getting better in the world? I haven't seen one place where it's getting better. And when the world governments, and they're involved in these immoral acts and changing genders and giving rights to people of sinful lifestyles and imposing those on others and locking people down and it's just becoming tyrannical and whenever you have a tyrant it is never good and that's the direction the world is going everything is being set up for that and so we are to encourage each other like the doctrine of the rapture hey we're going to be out of here when i don't know could be today could be 259 today, right before the game, and you're not going to have to worry about the game. It, it could be later. We, it could be years down the road. We don't know. But as we're watching, as we're seeing what's taking place, we know it can't be all that far off because of what Scripture says. And so we want to make sure that we are encouraging others. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In other words, keep your focus on that which is ahead. And Hebrews 10.25 tells us specifically how to do this. 
says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What is the day? We, we see this day approaching. It's the end of the rule of the Gentiles. It's the rapture of the church. It's the tribulation of the saints and also Israel. It's the Antichrist coming into the world. We're looking for that day, that period of time. Day is not used as a 24-hour day here. It's that time period that lies in front of us. As wickedness increases, we know it's getting closer. Now, if righteousness was increasing, I'd say, well, it's being put off a little bit. But as wickedness increases, we know from the book of Daniel and elsewhere in Scripture that wickedness is going to increase. Or we look at the days of Noah, it's Matthew 24 tells us, as in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. And the days of Noah were filled with violence and self-focus. And we see that today. Now going on in verse 25, it says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Here's the encourager. Remember Saul? He's the persecutor of the church. It says, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And I believe that's in the thousands. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So for a whole year, you had thousands of people getting together, sitting down and learning what proper doctrine was. And of course, we know that we're supposed to devote ourselves just like they did in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And how do we do that? By meeting together. Now, during the pandemic, which is supposed to be declared to be over sometime in May, I don't know why they're putting it off, uh, a little side note. Yeah, it was just kind of irritating, um, slightly, flying over to Cambodia because Korean Airlines made you put on the mask and everybody in the plane had to have the mask. But then they passed out all the food. Everybody took off their masks. We got to eat twice on there. They gave us two meals. And everybody's looking at each other, talking to each other, and we're all eating, you know, and getting up and walking. That, and But put back on your mask, you know, when you are done eating. It's like... We've lost our minds. Why do we think it's going to be okay to not wear the mask when we're eating? Because obviously when you're eating, the virus doesn't transfer from one person to another. That must be the reasoning. There's just little stuff like that. You know, it can be irritating, but how do we encourage one another? If I would have had a Christian brother sitting next to me on the flight, I would have said, don't worry about it, brother. This is a temporary. We're going to be home. The blessed hope is going to be here, and we've got to put up with this stuff for a little while. It's going to be okay. But you can't do that if the person's not next to you. During the pandemic, you know, the church, I I think there was five weeks. We didn't have anybody here, maybe two people. And I was up here all by myself, and it was going over the Internet. Then after that, people slowly started coming back because there were problems. Obviously, people were getting sick. But there are several people that just stopped going to church. All churches really reported this, that, People just stopped going. They stopped fellowshipping. And of course, there were those people who were rebels. Uh, We ended up being accused of being a rebel because we opened up when we weren't supposed to. And John MacArthur, he opened up. They levied millions of dollars of fines against him. He won his case, by the way, because of the constitutional precedent. You cannot uh, restrict religious practices. You see all of that going on. But if people are separated 
If people don't fellowship, they cannot be encouraged. But then some people will say, but you know, there's a bunch of sinners there. And they're not very nice. And they don't always encourage. And I feel downtrodden. Let me ask you, do you think it's a command that we're supposed to meet together? It's a command in Scripture. It's in the imperative mood, which means do this and do this now and continue to do this and keep on doing this. That's what, it's, that's what it means. And so when a command is given to fellowship, we are not to remain sedentary and uh, solitary. We are to get together and talk. Why do we do that? Because there's things in each one of us that God wants to fix. And we can't fix that unless we're together. To fix that, there's going to be sparks. Do we like sparks? No. And some people say, well, I'm not getting together because there's sparks. You know, people don't love me or they don't talk to me. You talk to people. Like, for instance, when we have fellowship afterwards. I would encourage you guys, don't go up to the same people you go up to every week. Now, by habit... We sit in the same places, right? I should make all you guys get up and pick a new seat on the other side. <laughs> now, little side note on that. <clears throat> One of the first jobs I had as a Christian was at Calvary Chapel North Park in San Diego. And I would usher. That's where I met Patty, ushering. She came down. Oh, the angel spoke, you know. She came right down. But then I, I was supposed to encourage people to move to the center because it's an old theater and there's not much leg room. And if there were spaces open in the middle, we were encouraged them to go to the middle and sit in the middle. Don't sit on the edges because people have a hard time getting around you. And so it was my job to go to the people that would first sit on the ends of the aisle, say, excuse me, uh, I've been asked to ask everyone here that they move in. And there was this one woman, several times, but this one particular time, this woman, she folded her hands and she said, no. I said, okay. And, And the guy sitting next to her said, she doesn't like holding hands with other people. And Mike would make us hold hands a lot. You know, and Mike McIntosh would, and that would make some people uncomfortable. So I got the rest of the ushers, and we made her go move to the center. No, we didn't do that. We didn't, we didn't make her go to the center. We just said, okay. And we just encouraged them to go to the center, thinking of others who would come in a little later, and they could fill in on the sides. And, and we, don't, we don't like any kind of confrontation. We don't want to feel uncomfortable. And when, you're, when two Christians are together, sometimes they're going to have three opinions and those opinions don't jive. And all of them are different. And we can talk about that, but we can talk about those things in a spirit of humility. Or if it's something personal that we're dealing with, that's why we're supposed to get together in person, face to face. I believe that if somebody calls themselves a believer and they have an opportunity to be together inside a church, and they say, no, I'm just going to watch online. I think you're being disobedient. Yeah, I, I don't want to say it too strongly. You're a filthy, rotten sinner and a pagan. You're probably not even saying, no. It's, it's, it's not like that. It's just we get comfortable. And this is what this guy 
from India was saying that the church, and this was back in 1905, he said the church, they're concerned about comfort and pleasing self rather than reaching out to others, seeing how others are doing, not getting involved in the lives of others, but just say, how's life? Have you been struggling lately? Are things going good? That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to meet together when we can. Now, are there exceptions to that? Absolutely. When I speak, most every time I'm speaking in generalities. There are times where that cannot happen. I'm not talking about those times. I'm talking about the times where you just simply say, no, I will not. You know, humility is the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of the fear of the Lord. And submitting to God is one of the hardest things we'll ever do. Whether it's reading our Bibles or praying or fellowshipping or doing study, it's hard. I mean, it's not a miracle that we all show up to church, but we we have a sense that we need to be obedient to what Christ says, but we want to pick and choose what we want to be obedient with. My encouragement, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, you are all here, right? But there are those who choose not to, and like I said during the pandemic, there are people that just fell off the roles of the church, so to speak. We don't have a membership role here, but they they just stopped going. And God wants us to be encouraged. Don't do that. Don't put yourself in solitary confinement and not fellowship. He wants us to fellowship. That's one of the four things in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I'll go on since I just beat that dead horse. Verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. So who is this guy, Agabus? He is a prophet. There was a prophet at the time. He wasn't an apostle. He was a prophet. And he is also mentioned later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 21. He's the one that prophesied that Paul would be bound and taken away to the Gentiles. And of course, the the church at the time, they were grieving over the fact that Paul would be arrested and be taken away. But Agabus was the one, the prophet that showed up and said, this is going to happen. There were still prophets in the New Testament that existed in the official office, and Agabus was one. The question is, do they exist today? Well, (laughs) with this new apostolic reformation that's out there, there are people who claim to be prophets. What is the condition for being prophet? How often can you be wrong? You can't be wrong one time. Not one time according to the Old Testament. And of course, according to the Old Testament, if a prophet spoke and it was not of God, what did they do to him? They stoned him. They got rocks and they beat him to death with the stones is what they did. It was quite a serious thing. And so if somebody wants to claim to be a prophet today, I require myself personally... I require 100% accuracy, 100% success. And if whatever they speak aligns with Scripture, great. You can be a prophet in the office of a prophet. I also know that there will be two prophets in the end times, and nowhere does it specifically say that the office of a prophet is done away with. 
But I do think that there are a lot of people who claim to be prophets and are not. They are deceivers. And so we have to be careful. If you watch any television or YouTube or whatever it might be, and you see somebody who claims to be a prophet, just check out their history. Have they ever been wrong? If they've been wrong, disregard what they have to say. Go to the scriptures. See what the scripture has to say. And if we do that, we'll be on solid footing. This is good doctrine. This isn't doctrine that I've made up. This is what Scripture has to say. And so Agabus was one of these prophets. He would have been always correct. And he was the one that said that there's going to be this famine. And as a result of this famine, it says in verse 29, the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And they actually saved up money. We went through 1 Corinthians and talked about this in chapter 16. Paul told the Corinthians to save their money on the first day of the week, gather together so when he comes, he doesn't have to ask for the gift to be given to those in Judea. He could just get it and he could take it back to the elders who were in Jerusalem. So (coughs) going on, What about this uh, giving? I am not going to give you a message on giving and tithing. First, I think you already know that tithing is something Old Testament. It is not New Testament. In New Testament, it is giving. For those who don't know, if you gave like a tithe, if you call it a tithe in the Old Testament, it was 23 and a third percent total. It wasn't 10%. You had to give... Your regular tithe, you had to give once to the priest in the temple, and you had to give once for the priest and the poor who were out there. And it worked out to 23 and a third percent. And, and so giving, yes, we're supposed to be givers. We're supposed to take of our wealth, I'm talking cold hard cash, and we're supposed to give it to those who are in need, however the Lord would direct in that. Barna Research Group in 2021, he talked about Christians and of practicing Christians report charitable giving, which is good. I think it should be 100%, but 90%, okay, I'm I'm good with that, that Christians give. And measured by dollar amounts giving, that practiced by Christians, they gave an average of $3,004 total in the past 12 months. That would have been in 2020. And, And... that's great. That's wonderful. And we have the spirit of giving. The United States is the most generous country throughout the face of the earth that gives of their wealth to those who are in need. And other countries are doing that now, like in Turkey and Syria. It's very, very sad over there. I don't know if you've been following that, but 10,000 buildings, they think, have collapsed over there in Turkey because of that 7.8 earthquake. And the land moved what, three meters which is about 10 feet. It just shifted on the fault. And I don't know if you saw some of the videos of the buildings just flattening and the stories of people that had been rescued. There was one baby who was born in the rubble and was rescued, still had the umbilical cord tied. The mother was rescued as well. And then there was a tragic sight of a father holding the hand of his daughter who had been crushed by the building. And he was just sitting there holding her hand because she had died. And there's just sadness. And they talked about um, 1,000 people dying, 2,000, 5,000. This could go 25, 30,000 people easy that have died. 
And there's a lot of help going into that, and, and that's good, and that's what should be done. And we should be participants in that if we are able. We are to be givers. And that's what they did in the first century church because the people in Judea, they wouldn't have had what they needed. They wouldn't have the food because of the drought that Agabus uh, prophesied. Now going on in verse 12, or verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, it was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is Passover. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to the guard, guard uh, to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So here we see the Apostle James. He's killed. He's murdered by the sword. Now, who did this? Herod. Well, which Herod? Herod is a title. Herod is not a name. There was Herod the Great who was around when Jesus was born, and he died. Then there was Herod Antipas who killed John the Baptist. And there was Herod Agrippa in the book of Acts who persecuted the Christians. And he is the one that was eaten alive by worms. And then there is Herod Agrippa II that declared Paul innocent with Festus. Now, just as a side note, if you go to Israel, they will take you to Caesarea Maritima. There's Caesarea Philippi and there's Caesarea Maritima. And they have uncovered a hippodrome where they do the chariot races. If you ever saw the movie Ben-Hur, you know, Charlton Heston going around that big hippodrome. They have one of those. It's been uncovered. They have the amphitheater, which is there in which Herod Agrippa would have been speaking. He put on a coat that was kind of flashy. And as he was speaking, worms ate him from the inside out. You can actually go to that amphitheater. The place that it happened right there, it's authentic. It's an authentic place that you can go to. And you can see this where all this happened. And it's a beautiful view out there. And they had a lot of theater productions that go on there right now. They have restored some of that area. But you can actually go and see the area where Herod Agrippa was eaten alive by worms. Now, these apostles, we know that all of them were martyred except for one. You know who that one is? It's John. John was not killed. They tried to kill him by tradition. It says they dropped him in a vat of boiling oil and it was more like a jacuzzi for him. He, he did not fry. He was not deep fried in that oil. And so they took him out and banished him to the island of Patmos because he did not die. Now Simon Peter, he was crucified with his head down. Andrew, he was severely scourged, tied by ropes on an X-shaped cross. That's called the St. Andrew's cross. I don't know if you've seen that, but it, it looks just like an X, and he was crucified on that. James, the son of Zebedee, beheaded with a sword. Uh, John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. Uh, of course, I just told you he was put in a, a pot of boiling oil. He was unharmed, and he died of natural causes. Now, all of these are by tradition. The people that followed after them, the disciples of these apostles, they are the ones that recorded these things. Philip, he was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten, flayed, and crucified. 
head down. Thomas, he was lanced by idolatrous priests and burned up in an oven. Matthew, he was axed to death uh, with a halberd. I don't know if you know what a halberd is, but on one side it looks like a big axe head. And then there's a spear that points out the top. And there can be like something that will cause a lot of damage on the other side. If you just whack something, it'll cause damage. But he was flayed with that. Jude or Thaddeus, he was crucified. Simon the Zealot was crucified. Judas Iscariot, of course, we know he died by suicide. Uh, Matthias, stoned and beheaded. And Paul, of course, was beheaded. So all of the apostles. Now, do you think they would have done this? If they would have gone to their death willingly, if they didn't believe what was taking place, you know, they, and there were more uh, disciples, or excuse me, more apostles than just the 12 who were out there. Barnabas was called an apostle. But they were all killed for their faith. They were willing to do that to show you the truth of their belief. That even though the body is killed and maimed and baked or crucified, it will be raised again one day. So there is going to be a future persecution of the saints. Like in the past, it was really bad. In other parts of the world right now, it's really bad. Here, not so bad, but it will get bad. Now, how soon? I don't know how soon. But we're heading in that direction. Book of Revelation tells us in chapter 13 verse 7 that the antichrist will be given power to make war with the saints and to conquer them and he will be given authority over every tribe people language and nation that means we will be controlled by the antichrist now i don't mean we those of us who are here but it's the saints during the tribulation once the rapture takes place all christians go to heaven And we stay up there until the tribulation is done. But the people who are here are going to be witnessed to by the 144,000 Jews who are virgins, who are men. They are the evangelists and the two prophets. Book of Revelation talks about these guys. And people are going to get saved. And I think they're going to get saved by the thousands because you have witnessed to some or your children or your grandchildren have witnessed to some and you've told them of the rapture. And then the rapture happens. Some people are going to rejoice like, finally, there's no Christians around here. But other people are going to say, oh, no, there's no Christians around here. They were right about the rapture and they want to get saved. And they listen to the 144,000, they get saved. And when they do, they refuse to receive the mark of the beast, chapter 13 of Revelation and they're beheaded for their faith, which means an instant trip underneath the altar in heaven, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And so there is persecution which is coming. Now, I said previously that in Luke chapter 21, we are told to watch, and it says that generation will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. And I believe it's talking about the generation that exists in Israel today. The race of people that's in Israel today, that generation will not be moved from Israel until all these things be fulfilled. Now, how do we know that the day is approaching, this evil day is approaching? As I started out, we just see it. We see it all around us. Now, one of the things about the cults, which is out there, is the cults are about control. They control information that you receive. They control your finances. They control your behavior. All of those things are done by cults. Well, Satan is the author of the cults. Satan is the author 
of the governments. The reason our constitution was set up the way it was because the founding fathers who were deists were aware of the fallenness of humankind, how they will attempt to control everything. That's what the king, King George, did in England. And, and so they wanted to put limits on that. But, of course, that's being done away with slowly. It's being chipped away with the rights that you think you have. They're going to go away. And the United States is going to be part of that. We're just going to flow in with what the Antichrist wants to do. That's going to happen. And when that does, that's when everything, the hell breaks loose. The seven-year tribulation is here. But how do we know? And, of course, several times we're, we're told to watch I've mentioned this previously, but I'm going to say it again. The move to crypto. Now, there was the C-Day. The C-Day has come and gone. I told you about that some people are saying it's, it's going to come. And there's going to be a day when it comes. I'm, I'm pretty confident. I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet, but I'm pretty confident. It's going to come. Where the cash that you have, and I've read articles about this, the cash that you have is going to eventually become worthless. And how they're going to do that is they're going to take your bank account and they're going to put it into a digital form. You won't be able to go in anymore and withdraw cold hard cash. They'll say you have to use this card to do that. Now most of us are already doing that, right? Or you'll use your phone to do that. How many times you go to Starbucks, somebody puts their phone up there and beep, beep, and it takes the money from your phone, from your account directly to your bank. Well, that's the way everything is going to be. And to get there, there's going to have to be a crisis. What kind of crisis do you think it's going to have to be? A financial crisis. How do you get a financial crisis? Keep spending and spending and spending and never pay it back. Bankruptcy, right? You do that, then all of a sudden you only get 50 cents on the dollar. Well, you had $6,000 in the bank account, now you only get $3,000 and it's all digital. (laughs) <laughs> enjoy the day you're not going to own anything and you're going to like it you know, that's what they're telling us the WEF and so when that happens when you get your bank statement I don't know if you get it digitally now I'm sure it'll all go to that but if you get it physically you can see on there and I, I remember even like a couple of years ago that bank account if you have a visa or something it tells you what you spent it on it, it tells you it categorizes it some of these programs they'll categorize what you spend Well, what if the government says you shouldn't have spent on that? Like if you buy a firearm, Visa and MasterCard and uh, American Express, they have a code now for that. If you buy a firearm, if you don't pay cash, if you buy it through a credit card, you are automatically put into a file because you own a firearm. Well, what if they want to take away the firearm? Well, they know exactly where you are. They know exactly where you live. Not only that, there was one time, I know I'm going off on a little tangent here, but I just want to prepare you for what lies ahead, and you can tell others. I was in our our cul-de-sac, we live in a cul-de-sac, and a group of four or five people came up, and they had these vests on, and they were having notebooks and, and clipboards and stuff. They said, excuse us, we'd like to get the GPS of your front door. Do you mind? And I, If it wasn't the front door, it would be the curb. And that they were going to every single house recording the GPS, the exact coordinates of the front door of every house. They have probably done it to you already. This was a couple of years ago. So they have all that information. 
They know your web history. They know your bank accounts. They know where you've been. If you think your phone is off and they're not tracking that, that I can look, and I do this, I look on my Google Maps and I see where I've been and how much time I've spent at places and I record that and that's how I do some billing and say, oh, it's so convenient. And they think, so, isn't it good? Yeah, and you, you look at that and go, oh, what's going on? So if you buy something that they don't want you to buy, they'll stop the process. If you've bought too much gas or diesel, they say, oh, we got to cut you off of that. You can buy food, but you can't buy that. And they can control it by a computer. Cults are about control. The government's about control. They want to control you. This is coming in the future. How long? A year? 20 years? I don't know. But it's coming. And we are warned about this. So evil men will do things that will go from bad to worse. We're encouraged to watch. Now, Peter, of course, is thrown into prison here. It says in verse 5 of chapter 12, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrances. There were 16 soldiers which were there. Why did Herod put 16 soldiers to guard Peter? Because he broke out before. Remember, they had all the apostles arrested and they threw them in prison and they got out. It wasn't a problem. Peter got out before and they're going, well, that's not going to happen again. We're putting 16 soldiers on him. And as we'll get into the story next week, the, the change just fell off. The angel said, put on your clothes. Light was there. The gates opened, walked right past all the guards, went out And lo and behold, Peter was not there and Herod was mad. He was mad that Peter wasn't there. And what did he do to the 16 soldiers? Like the Queen of Hearts, off with their heads. He killed them all because if you're a Roman soldier and your prisoner got away, you were killed. And so they had really good incentive not to let the prisoner go away. So this idea of persecution, and we'll continue with this a little bit, with the persecution comes encouragement. In the midst of this transfer where people were having to go out of Jerusalem to northern Africa, the island of Cyprus, and up to Antioch, those are the places that they fled to. The gospel went out, and Barnabas comes along, and he encourages everybody. He's the encourager. So in the future, if you think you're being persecuted a little bit, and I think it's light persecution that we're experiencing now, if you think it's going to get worse, just be encouraged. And if you think it might get worse for your children, I think it will, or our grandchildren, I think it's going to get doubly worse for them. We need to encourage them that there is a blessed hope. There's the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to look for in the face of persecution. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you for your goodness to us. You have told us that these things are going to be taking place. We ask, Lord, that you would give us endurance, long-suffering, patience, all of those things necessary to fulfill your will for us and so that we might be witnesses to others and bring encouragement to them. We know that the days are evil, but Father, we know that you are good. And so we'll trust in you. We thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, please stand.